0: It's not about checking a box, it's about being on a continuum. It's about constantly looking for ways to improve every day. It's not about, you know, not doing this and setting this aside in favor of that. It's about being more conscious every day to take care of the communities you operate in, to operate your business more responsibly, thinking about all of your stakeholders, not just your shareholder, not just not there's not one community that you serve that that takes the forefront in front of everybody else. And then also how how you treat the environment and doing it more and more responsibly, which is what. Sort of everybody, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, everybody agrees upon. We all want to treat the the world and the earth better. How do we do it is the question.
1: The Energy in Transition podcast is the first of its kind, exploring the critical role of oil and gas in energy transition. Energy transition is not transition away from hydrocarbons. It's a collaborative effort towards a lower carbon future. And these are the stories of the companies and people that are actively reducing emissions and actually getting us there. Leaders from all sectors will discuss industry trends and topics like emerging technologies, global energy demand, access to capital markets, ESG, and workforce innovation. This podcast is sponsored by Locked-in Companies and Galtway Marketing. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Leslie Beyer. You're back with the Energy and Transition Podcast. We are recording today in the Fletcher Azul Tequila studio here in Houston. Thanks everyone for listening. And I'm so happy to welcome our guest today. We have the senior vice president and CFO of Franks International, Melissa Kugel. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. So happy to be here. Yes, I'm so glad you're here. Melissa was previously the CFO of NESSER, which is National Energy Services Reunited. And before that, she was in a number of senior positions at ENSCO. Um, but most importantly, she has a degree in accounting from Louisiana State University, and I know makes a mean gumbo. So, yes, <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to that. We can talk about Louisiana. Um, but thanks so much, Melissa. Thanks for being here. Um, I really appreciate your leadership. First of all, you have done so much um, really to lead, especially on ESG issues. And so we're going to get into that a little bit on the podcast today. But I just want to start for thanking you for your leadership. I've just been so happy Well, the feeling has
0: been 100% mutual. It was, uh, um, I had very few, coming from the drilling side of the business, very few really broader industry connections. Um, And after spending that year essentially in the Middle East, it was a great sounding board to get to have a lot of networking. I've called so many counterparts um, and been been able to really cultivate my network connections and find a lot of new people to lean on to bring an additional level of support to Frank's.
1: That's awesome because that is exactly what we try to do Absolutely. and what we try to provide, you know, at that level. And I've had great feedback on that. Um, and people are just learning a lot from each other. I mean, this whole ESG thing is a new game for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's um, a little scary. Don't know quite how to uh, uh, slay the
0: demon, so to speak, or the dry. I mean, it's thought of as this bad thing um, or a check the box thing. We talk about, as you know, when we sit in the the committee meetings, we talk a lot about, uh, sh- is it a ch- check-the-box exercise? Is it a fulsome exercise? Where does it fit in the scheme of things? And, and trying to wrap your head around what ESG means to your organization can be really daunting at times, um, and you don't know quite how to begin.
1: Right. So starting at the beginning, can you tell our listeners just a little bit about the business at Frank's? What all y'all do? You obviously lead everything financially, but you're very involved in operations and all that. So maybe just for those who aren't familiar with Frank's a little bit about the company.
0: Yeah, so so I joined Frank's. It's been um, we're we're getting about eighteen months in. It's been an incredible, really true homecoming. You said I was from Louisiana um, when I left LSU. I moved to Houston, um, and and so. To to navigate my way literally at my career twenty year mark back to essentially a business that has its roots back to my home uh, is has been a pretty profound experience. Franks has got a really really deep history. So founded in 1938, we're a casing running company. So um, or that's what we have been historically known for. Uh, so we we deal deal in uh, well construction. So we are the ones who put the pipes into the ground, not the drill pipes actually making the turns and. Uh, and dis- rock destruction, but we are actually setting up the, if you will, almost the well infrastructure, and we're a critical part of that. But we also have businesses that we've expanded out into where we actually have a, a small pipe business that we actually sell what's called large, o- dam- o- large outside diameter pipe. We have um, a drill tools business, which actually helps optimize that drilling program. And we have um, a large cementing business, which services um essentially the well construction above, uh, above on the well floor.
1: Okay. And it's a global business. I mean, y'all are in how many countries? So at any one given point in time, we're operating in between 50 and 60 countries.
0: So yeah, we have a huge global footprint, um, operations in lots of areas, both land and offshore. Um, we're probably best known for our technological advancements in the deep water space um, and our, our casing running in deep water. But we certainly can do it just about everywhere. And we have technologies we bring to bear everywhere.
1: Right. And for your background, it's perfect. I mean, after that year in the Middle East, you certainly have that international experience and you've been able to bring that with you to Frank's.
0: Absolutely. Um, The the drilling companies that I worked for very much were offshore based as well. So um, we had some I've done a lot of travels, although I've never been an official expat um, for a variety of reasons. At one point in time, I really craved that. Um, It's not something on on the list of things that I've knocked out at this point. But Uh, I've traveled the world extensively and pretty much if someone's drilling somewhere, I've probably laid feet there (laughs) um, in the variety of finance roles that I've had, which has also driven just the curiosity around the business and why I tend to uh, eventually, you know, dip my toe in everybody's pool, so to speak, um, just because I really have a natural curiosity for the business.
1: Right. Well, so touching all those different parts that you just described, you know, this podcast is all about energy transition and ESG and what the role of companies involved in upstream oil and gas development or full stream oil and gas development, how we can really contribute to lower carbon future um, and the energy transition, which we say is not a transition away from oil and gas, but just a transition to greater efficiencies, and more stable environmental presence. So how, at Frank's, are you approaching that? What is your kind of cross-enterprise view of energy transition? Yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of a place where you can
0: go any direction in the conversation. And we try to actually take multiple avenues. We don't try to say, here is our, you know, a lot of companies say, here is going to be our, uh, the mark we're going to make in the world on ESG. And I think the way we we think about it is pretty much, I asked someone last year we had sort of a a, a friend of mine who was an environmental uh, representative, and I said, you know, h- how should we think about that? You know, what what is that checkbox? What are the things that I need to do um, as an accountant? It's like, well, here's the rule set. You follow the rules, and here's your net income. Um, but but with ESG, it just <laughs> it's doesn't nice to have a checkbox. Exactly. Like, that. like, just tell me the instruction set and give me the goal <laughs> line, and I will get past it. Um, but ESG doesn't really work that way. And and she left me with a thought that I thought was so. I mean, it really has carried forward to me to this day. Of just like think about safety. And safety 30 years ago. And the way that this industry has sort of woven it into its very fabric, right? I mean, we, we don't, it's, it's an unconscious thing we almost do now. We, we make safety a priority, but we're achieving safety metrics that this industry 20 and 30 years ago didn't even think possible. I mean, didn't even entertain the notion we could do what we've done. But it's become really ownership at a very employee level every employee knows about the priority. Everybody understands their role. And from an ESG perspective, that was the comparative she made to say, you know, companies, it's not about checking a box. It's about being on a continuum. It's about constantly looking for ways to improve every day. It's not about, you know, not doing this and setting this aside in favor of that. It's about being more conscious every day to take care of the communities you operate in, to operate your business more responsibly thinking about all of your stakeholders not just your shareholder not just not there's not one community that you serve that that takes the forefront in front of everybody else and then also how how you treat the environment and doing it more and more responsibly which is what sort of everybody no matter where you fall on the spectrum everybody agrees upon we all want to treat the, wor- the world and the earth better how do we do it is the question
1: I agree. I could not agree more. And with safety, it is woven into our culture. I know we have a program that you're, you're familiar with at PISA where we train foreign service officers yep. um, on the energy industry. And many of them have never had any exposure. And we sit down on that first day and before every you know, section there's a safety moment. And we all know that there's a safety moment before any time we ever say anything to each other. But they're like, oh, you guys, I, I can't, y'all are just doing this for our benefit. <laughs> and we're like, no, it's it's part of our culture. Yeah. And I truly, like you, see that really becoming more prevalent. It's beginning to permeate. Um, and we do all want to treat the environment appropriately. You know, we have children, we have families, we have friends, um, and we are becoming better at it. We're reducing our emissions and things like that. So are there any, do you want to speak to any specifics at Frank's where, um, you know, y'all are focused, I guess, either holistically or um, have something that you can point to and that you say, this is what we're doing for the environment, for example? Absolutely,
0: so, so we started, I mean, we just created, if you will, the effort last year, um, consciously. We've always been doing a lot of the things, but not as consciously, right? More on an unconscious level. So as we pulled together, we built a really cross-functional team. So we have safety representatives, we have, I, I lead the group, we have communication, we have engineers, we have operations folks. So we have a, a real cross-functional group and we sat down and we said, okay, where do we wanna make our mark? Most obviously, it feels like the place we should be thinking about is the E of ESG. Um, although we do need to make sure we don't forget about the S and we don't forget about the G. Um, the S, we've, I think all, it's always been there. I mean, the energy industry is amazing in our ability to have serviced the communities that we've been operating in. It's not always been perfect, um, but, but we have generally left a tremendous mark in the communities we operate particularly those in isolated regions of the world right building infrastructure building schools um that's always been really important to this industry as a whole what what hasn't been as prevalent is the e factor i think it's always been sort of the back of the mind we feel a little bit helpless. But when you look at just the incremental efficiencies, we've been able to scale up without thinking about it as a way to reduce our own emissions and as a way to extract fossil fuels more cleanly, um, it's become far more of a conscious effort now. So when we started the conversation internally, what the first things that we did was, we have a lot of tools that really already, you know, we might not have thought about it in the commercialization effort that way, But when you think about the ability to drill more efficiently, when you think about the ability to complete your drilling program faster, all of those things either equate to fewer people involved, less time usage, which is all literally consumption of energy. You know, I can remember having this really interesting conversation at OTC a couple of years ago and I was like, the energy expand, like the amount of energy you expend within a drilling program right, between hoisting and lowering and drilling and the, the energy expansion to actually make the extraction is tremendous. And we were just having kind of like, hey, what if you put sort of an energy wall? We got must to build, like you just surround the drilling rig with that. Um, but these are things that we think about all the time, and we do it unconsciously as a way to continue. We are, we are really amazing engineers in our industry, and we can tap ways to be infinitely more efficient, which still provides a really meaningful piece of global expansion you know people that they need energy they need heat they need light and to the extent we can do it more and more efficiently th- you know emissions are reduced all around and so some of our tools um, are pretty fantastic in that regard they really serve us to to um, to create the more efficient operations between you know we've got a tool called the VersaFlow so what that allows for is it allows for continuous operations. So you can do several things. There's less stopping events. And every time you stop, they're, they're largely within a job is a loss of time and efficiency. So it allows for essentially more direct and continuous operations and multiple operations to flow. We've also got another tool called the DSTR that, that serves to create efficiency within the whole right? So it helps to reduce, uh, torque and drag and all of these conditions that can reside downhole, which creates, you know, you have a bit that doesn't wear out as fast. You have drill pipe that doesn't wear out as fast. You're actually reducing waste. I mean, that's been one of the things that's been interesting as well is just the amount of waste that gets consumed. So you're talking about the energy expansion, the waste that gets consumed, all of these things have negative impacts on the environment. And when you just focus on the business that you're doing and making it, you can make a tremendous impact there. Um, And and there are other companies, and I think that that's very noble as well, that are pursuing other paths, you know, how to go down different energy paths. That's good as well. When you're in your wheelhouse, though, and you can make your wheelhouse work as efficiently as possible, that's another contribution.
1: I agree. It is the lowest hanging fruit. Us becoming more and more efficient, you know, reducing what we spend, for example, in diesel, you know, lowering all of how we expend those energies. That definitely is the lowest hanging fruit. And, you know, you, you brought up an interesting point on workforce you know, we are, and you said it so well, we are the smartest engineers driving (laughs) all of this innovation. It's our workforce that's going to get us to this next lower carbon level. It's not, you know, we cannot be excluded from this entire conversation and our highly, you know, technically skilled workforce, excluded from the next era of energy. So we talk a lot about how to attract that next workforce, how much culture change is kind of needed, um, certainly inclusion and diversity. City. You have great, you know, thoughts around that. Do you want to kind of <laughs> share just a little bit about, you know, as as a female leader in the space, your, your experience and how much you think, you know, culture is going to help us drive a workforce?
0: Yeah, no, it's really an interesting because you look historically... And this industry has, I mean, there are books written, there's movies written. I mean, the ingenuity that came with basically the, the inception of, of fossil fuels, right? And so whether you think it's the wildcatters or the engineers or whomever it is, there is the spirit within our industry that if we could tap in energy transition, I think the world would benefit. I'm biased in that view, but that's my view. And I think there's, I, I think it's so true I feel like we've had these countervailing forces historically, and you're starting to see them come together, and they really need to. And can you imagine the world of possibility if it did, right? So we're, we're, we're not working against each other to say you're either a renewables or you're oil and gas, and that's it. That, that's how the world's going to work. You pick a side and be there, Melissa, right? And you're seeing more of that coalesce where there is room for both dialogues, and that's important, That is very important. And so because that is the place of possibility where you can start to think of really interesting things that can happen. And so, no, I don't think the oil and gas industry is going to be the one that creates fusion energy. But there's other possibilities that we're probably not even entertaining right now that we could think about in transitioning to, um, you know, a lower, lower carbon world, right? Between carbon, you're starting to see it being tapped between carbon storage. You're starting to see a little bit more renewables. We talk about hey, could we think about doing this? It doesn't mean it's a, it's a firmly, but could we participate in wind farm construction? I mean, we drill, yeah, we, we participate in drilling construction. Who's to say we couldn't? And that's not a, it's not an answer to equate and say we will. But these are conversations that I feel like couldn't even be entertained, let's say 10 years ago. I do think to the discussion around sort of the workforce, when you think about um, our industry, when you, When you compare, you know, your your old wildcatters, entrepreneurs like these, you know, the crazy people chasing the oil. Right. Um, We have been a really historically conservative industry. So somehow we evolved into this really conservative view of the world. And I remember anecdotally, I remember when I first started in oil and gas and like, you know, pride, we still had
1: to wear business attire.
0: I feel like us and the bankers were the only people wearing business attire.
1: <laughs> you know, t- we were wearing it on Capitol t- Hill, and t- I had to wear a skirt yeah. as a woman. I couldn't wear pants.
0: Yeah, 10 years ago, right? <laughs> and so, I mean, the world moves past you. And when you look at two younger generations, they are, they are not judging each other based upon whether they put a tie on in the morning. And the sooner we come around to that realization, it's in a small way, right? But it's indicative of a big way. And I think the younger generations, when they see people that the expectation is you put on a tie, then what they immediately extrapolate that to is, well, you lack innovation because you don't have a foosball table in your workroom, right? Or something like that. Um, And that's not true. But sometimes the younger generation correlates those two things. And I think we've done a good job of are trying to bring to bear other things and we we've, we've certainly moved forward from that really traditional super conservative view again we're becoming part of the dialogue it's a huge shift for our industry a very welcome shift for some of us who've seen it coming um, you know and i think i think it really does i think as the world starts to align better i mean we've it's been a rough year for a lot of people But, you know, sometimes things have to kind of bubble up to get to the other side. And I think when we get to the other side and we really start to listen to one another, depending upon, you know, okay, whatever your view is in the energy transition spectrum, when we sit down at the table and we talk to one another a bit deeper, I think, again, all of this starts to to start to flush out and people really understand, hey, fossil, I've been in a room, fossil fuels, you know, according to astrophysicists that work on fusion, this is a really valuable part of our energy demand in the future. And once we recognize that and start to look to solve the problems without just looking exclusively to solar or wind or some sort of wholly renewable classification, then we really start to talk about and deepen the conversations. Then, then the younger generation sees something they haven't seen before. But it's really up to us, you know, sort of, sort of the leaders right now to, to start to have that dialogue more meaningful.
1: I could not agree more. And the way that you describe it as it, it's just not a binary choice. And in that space, I see so much opportunity for oil field services. Absolutely. Right? Not. But the, we have seen companies be like, no, we're in oil and gas. We're not going to participate in, in any kind of renewables. However, the the supply chain for an offshore wind farm doesn't look that much different maybe than onshore land, you know, directional drilling. The, the supply chain and the way that the equipment and services companies work Work and a lot of that technology that's there is there's great opportunity for us. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's growing. It's it growing is. tremendously. So when you look at it,
0: I mean, as the CFO, I look to value creation, right? And when you look at a market that's really, really growing right now, I mean, you know, so, so oil and gas is start, starting to become a mature industry. Whereas when you look at renewables, it is going to get capital. And so as the CFO, I'm like, maybe we should be thinking about that. Again, not an answer, but a thought. And entertaining the thought, you know, is a spark that ends up taking you somewhere in the future. Uh, But, you know, I mean, there's still minds to open, right? I mean, I've been on the phone with investors in the past month or two, and you get to the ESG. They want you to be doing something to ESG, but then they're, I mean, I've literally, well, I mean, you know what you do is this business, (laughs) <laughs> You're yes. like, yeah, I know my business oh, man. <laughs> I know my business um, and my responsibility to all of our shareholders is to find ways to create value. And if so if we see again that's not a that's not a mandate to say go participate in and something crazy that you've never done before. That's not at all the way we think about it, but where you can make parallels, and find a way to tap another growth industry, absolutely we should talk about it and see if there's a place we can play.
1: Especially when they're tied to your technology development. Like that's your calling card all day long. If we're gonna develop these innovative technologies that could apply, you know, across broadly energy you know, elements. Why would we not do that? And I do think it gets back to that culture shift. And we have historically been so conservative. And I think there's another part there in the G on the ESG where we need to look at our public boards. You know, that's where I think once we start to get a little more diversity on the public board scene, maybe we could see not only more capital, I mean, but, you know, just some different leadership that would open that kind of thought you know, pattern that you're talking about.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think there's, there's all sorts of things that you see. We're just on the cusp of, right? We're just on the cusp of and, and getting there. And the, the other, the other important thing we haven't talked about is our customers, right? So as an OFS company, my customers and P's, and I take my cues from them, where do they need me? And what can I do to be of service to them? That's, that's a number one priority and you see them doing the same thing and so so for us there's a we should be taking our cues from them to say if they're participating in that dialogue then then we should be thinking about it too
1: And there are great opportunities for collaboration with our customers in all of this. Absolutely, The things that we can do together with community stakeholders, 100% all day long. Innovative technologies, you know, if you can begin with your customer in some kind of field test development agreement, you know, you can get a little further with some things that you're experimenting with, especially during a time of reduced capital.
0: Yes, yes. I mean, it's just, it's, it's quite simply the great minds think alike. And the more you put in a room, And the more you kind of let people unleash and start to think outside the box um, and really spur that, you know, I mean, there's there's a little bit of this that says, you know, our industry, because of all the challenges. The other thing is, you know, nothing, nothing breeds ingenuity like desperation. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, it sounds sounds kind of but but nothing like putting somebody, you know, in the lion's den and saying, find your way out. Um, And and you, and again, it's just, it's a way to create a conversation to think about the art of the possible. And for me, that's a good thing that's come out of all of this. Um, You could say the past eight months, you could say the past five years, but but really starting in 2013 and 2014, when we thought, oh, this is going to be a little blip on the radar screen. And it's not. It's it has not. not
1: turned out to be that way at all and you know even ofs pricing still hasn't recovered since 2014 and so that is drives the need for more collaboration you know with with the operators obviously the mp companies you know it's going to have to get a little better for us although our sector will continue to shrink and digitalization and yeah. automation is going to lead to that too so did you want to speak to any kind of the iot or electrification of the oil field or how you see that maybe change in our space this episode of the Energy and Transition podcast is sponsored by Milestone Environmental Services, whose commitment to environmental stewardship and protecting customers, employees, regulators, and neighboring communities make it a leader in the transition to a cleaner energy future. Milestone provides innovative, dependable solutions for non-hazardous waste disposal, which helps their EMP partners improve efficiency and environmental performance in the production of oil and gas. Milestone builds strong customer relationships with a deliberate, proven approach that industry trusts to keep the environment safe. Known for its passion for customer service, Milestone strives to exceed expectations in all they do. Far ahead, always nearby—that's Milestone. Absolutely, we all have a role to
0: play in that. I think the one thing about the digitalization and the automation is there are so many bits and pieces, and I think for at times we get. we get over our skis and thinking, oh, we're going to have the autonomous rig that drills by itself. Um, I don't know. My brain is an accountant brain that struggles to wrap its head fully around that getting done in a short period of time. Uh, It will certainly happen. And I think we're starting to, we're starting to automate the bits and pieces right now. And so you see, Franks, we have a huge we have a huge piece to play in that to automate our casing running services, to automate and the next stage of that will then begin to be the integration. So when we so we start to talk about now, well, we now have an automated tool. But then to make that tool talk to and run in the drillers console where it can be then utilized by somebody else, then you've now taken somebody else. So when you start to go from from several autonomous tools that they can work by themselves without somebody literally pushing something right to there's a button push. But then allowing that button push to be conducted from a console that is another service provider console and to really have those tools start to speak to each other It's an interesting conundrum that we're finding ourselves in because of that lack of capital. To really take us down that spectrum quickly, you need a big influx of capital. And the capital is not really there. Um, And so I see that being a longer transition to true autonomy and autonomous drilling operations, if you will. But we are certainly making leaps and strides. and, And we'll be there probably before we know it and quicker than I would anticipate.
1: Well, so speaking of access to capital from the CFO seat. When do you see, you know, a little bit starting to free up for us? I mean, is it going to take until next year? Yep. What do you think that looks like? Well, um, so we did get a sector upgrade, which was tremendous
0: for us last week. Thank you, James West. <laughs> so, um, or thank you, Evercore, I really should say. Uh, but that was tremendous. And I think that, you know, there's a point, we, <laughs> good or bad, we have someone internally that coined the term "pomp." Point of maximum pessimism, <laughs> and you know it's it's not good to think about, but it also is reality. And 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 sometimes when the tide turns, it turns quickly. And I think um, I think we we are at the cusp, and all you know, we've talked about that like three times already in this podcast. But I feel like that that's there as well, where people have largely. I mean, I feel like from an investor standpoint, people have kind of given up on energy, and, and that actually. Can be helpful to us in some regards because I mean, you take, there's blessings in everything. There's COVID blessings. There's, you know, so so you take that and you say, okay, well, what am I going to do to reinvent myself?
1: And, and we're good at that. We've a, shown that we're
0: good at that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you frack. Absolutely. And so you, you're at the point in place now where we are reinventing ourselves. And I think as the market, so I think COVID has really brought about, there were many people already there most people that's not to say every every group always has outliers right but as an industry i really truly feel like the tide has turned for us to really reinvent ourselves and so so now we are there and i think as soon as we catch a little bit of market if you will you need that one tailwind and then that becomes the snowball effect um and then all of a sudden you have the the avalanche and so we're not there yet um but the turning point will come for us and we will we will get there and i think covid Resolution will certainly aid a lot in that regard. I mean, our resilience as an industry is stronger than ever. And you, you have to step away and admire our ability as an industry since 2013 to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off and keep moving. Uh, we've done it now, I feel like, three and four times. And if we have to, we will do it again. And, and better days will come.
1: That is the most optimistic message <laughs> I think anybody could have about OFS right now. But I agree. That's our calling card, right? Absolutely. We're the ones that can actually get it done. It's an exciting time to be in this field. And, you know, I I don't know about you, but when I interact with my friends and family that aren't part of oil and gas, they're like, oh gosh, you must really be down. I'm like, why would I be down? It is so exciting, the things that we are working on and what that could mean for you and what that could mean for the world. When we talk about what we deliver and all of these areas that are booming in population, that's not the United States, that's not North America. You know, there are 3 billion people that don't have access to reliable energy. And it is not, you know, it's a great moral space for us to be that we can help deliver that. And, you know, us being able to produce natural gas the way we produced it after we reinvented ourselves and the frac revolution in the U.S. and how we can, yep. you know, send all that natural gas to China that needs it so they can stop burning coal. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, that's well, yeah, an exciting story. The electrification, the automation,
0: all of those are part you know, there's one important piece, and we sort of referenced it earlier, but we didn't actually talk about it a lot. And it, it was the DNI piece. And I think as you were talking, the thought that crossed my mind is maybe this is just Leslie and I. We're the optimistic ones, right?
1: I hope it's not, but I, it does feel but lonely sometimes. But it is it's <laughs> true.
0: This is very true. <laughs> but I think there are more of us now than my senses. And I think that does speak to the diversity piece of it. Um. There are many of us that see possibility that I'm not sure that there were as many of us. And and truly, optimism is a state of mind. It is totally a state of mind. And sometimes when we get the shock to the system, you almost need that grieving time. I mean, because, I mean, look, we were riding the high horse as an industry for a long time. We were in such a boom. The up cycle was huge for us. And so... We had to go through our grieving. And so some of us are coming out on the other side and we're like, okay. I mean, yes, we have survived. We've dusted ourselves off. But some of us are picking ourselves up and we're like, okay, there is the direction and we're going in and let's go. And I think the more of us that do that, the path is going to become clearer. And so I think that speaks to that diversity piece, not that it's just women, not that it's just ethnicity, but but that optimism, that that bringing different forefront. You need a pessimist in every crowd too, to be clear. (laughs) <laughs> um, because, because you need to know where your pitfalls reside, and you need to be realistic and pragmatic about it. But, um, but I think that that optimism and that that sense of possibility has got to bury itself in each one of us at our core, you know, so that we can withstand the storm until we get to that other side. Because we don't know if it's three months, six months, three years. I mean, maybe it's another three years. But it doesn't serve us to sit here and continue to lick wounds and to be stodgy and kind of say, we're not going to move. Um, it, it, our ability to redefine ourselves and reinvent ourselves is going to be part of our willingness to embrace new things, be it new sources of capital, new investors, new lines of business, whatever it is for you in, in the oil and gas space, you know, embrace it, move forward, own it, um, you know, it, you can make your decision the right decision with enough grit and manpower. And gosh knows, this industry has tons of get or done it. I mean, we can get stuff done if we put our mind to it. Um,
1: so we, we talk about the blessings of COVID or the silver linings. I know that, you know, y'all have transitioned to remote work. Um, how has that transition been for you? What's something great that's come out of it? No, I mean, certainly the
0: family time. I mean, it has been such a treasure uh, to be able to go on family walks every day. I've always been a workaholic. I will always be a workaholic. I I get, it's a part of my DNA. And I used to almost be ashamed of it, Um, but I'm not. I mean, it's one of the sort of the maturing elements. And that said, that time has been so treasured for me. And this morning we got out. I mean, there was never a day in the past I can't remember the years since my daughter was born and I was home on maternity leave that I actually had morning walks. This morning we got up, we set our alarm clocks to have our walk together around the, the
1: block as a family. And, and we will do that. I mean, that will be something we'll treasure forever. I think it's something that a lot of people are taking away is that perspective. And I'm right there with you. I'm a much better mother if I've got the outlet of my profession (laughs) to focus on. I'm driven. I enjoy what I do. And, you know, some people look at that and they're like, oh, she's so ambitious, whatever. I'm not so ambitious. I just got a lot of powder in my keg. And that is a great description. You know, I feel like I can accomplish a lot of things. And so, but the COVID situation really has helped us get some perspective on how to do a lot of that.
0: But I was not nearly as passionate on DNI topics. And then after my daughter was born and working with actually a few sort of women that were the trailblazers before us. And, and whenever you worked with them and you saw w- what you've put up with, I mean, I hate to say it, but there's, there's some real distinct challenges that I've faced in my career, um, And you look at what they probably had to deal with and the challenges, and that made your life a little bit easier in your challenges. And then you have a daughter and you think, wow, well, I really, I really feel like if she wants, and look, if she doesn't want to, if she doesn't have as much to your term, if she doesn't have as much powder in her keg, and that's not what her strong desire is, then that's fine. But if it is, I would like her trail to be a little bit more well manicured than mine was. And I want to leave it in a little bit better shape and like to say I made the path for her easier.
1: And not just her, all girls. um, you All know? girls who may not have, you know, I wasn't born into, into much, but I made it work. We all come from these yeah. different situations. And those situations factor, you know, what kind of breaks we get. Yep. And to get behind girls, I I agree, it is so... It just gives me a great amount of satisfaction to know that, you know, I've had to kind of tussle to get my comp where it needed to be before. And that's fine. And maybe my daughter won't have to do that, you know, <laughs> because people have been talking about equal pay for enough years by the time she's in the workforce. Absolutely. And um, so we can we can do our part. And I know you lead on that. And, and I thank you for your leadership, because those women that were there before us, they definitely dealt uh, with more than. Oh, yeah. Than for, we sure. Did. for sure. For sure.
0: And the the same here. I mean, I I see you in the forefront. um, And I think I feel a bigger responsibility on people like you and I. I mean, any candidates that are on the DNI front, it's almost like we have to recognize we're the next generation of trailblazers. And until there is, you know, sort of equal representation, Ruth Bader said something about, you know, when will equality be? And she was like, when all of the justices are women, right? Because nobody questioned it when it was men. So um, an extreme example, but, but one where I don't want my daughter, I became immune for a long time to, to being in the room where, I mean, on a daily basis, I, I am in more meetings where I'm the only woman in the meeting than not, still to this day. Um, and, and it was probably, it's more true today, today than it was five years ago. Because of the level was, you're at. Because I've moved up. Mm-hmm. And you think, you know, I can, a friend of mine, Bought a little pin for me, and it had like little pieces of what looked like broken glass because she said you, you broke the glass ceiling when I made executive, and it felt so great. I mean, it really it was a really empowering experience. It was a very impactful gift to me. Um, and about six months later, I thought, well, heck, no, I didn't break it. I just bonked <laughs> up against it. Finally, um, because it became obvious how many how many times I was sitting in a room and I was the absolute
1: only woman. Um, I'm more used to it now. And I'm at the board level um, right there with you. And it's not, um, it's not rare to, <laughs> to be the only woman, but I do see an increasing just, you know, inclusion and inclusivity with Absolutely. the executives that we work with that have been in those positions for a long time. And I see them reaching down and saying, hey, Leslie, here's somebody you need to know. You know, can I connect you with them? It is as easy as that. yes. And they do that. And there are a lot of men in the industry that thoughtfully do that for me. And I will always be grateful to them. Absolutely. Um, and and on the piece of board, you know, we just I'm very, very fortunate that we have so many great leaders in the space. And like I said, leaders that have been willing to come out and talk about all these issues like energy transition, like ESG, and that are going to lead our sector forward. The Absolutely. Way that, the way that you are. Melissa. And
0: I can remember a boss who went, you know, the, one of my first big promotions, if you will. And and he kind of said, look, I'm looking for you to be, I mean, we didn't put you here for no reason. You're not a wall fixture, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not our, our diversity quotient. And he sort of laid an expectation at my feet to say, I expect you to fill the role as a diverse candidate. Like I want you to bring those different thoughts to the table um, and the willingness to receive feedback, right? Because a lot of the, the behaviors, even if there's a desire to progress diversity, some of our behaviors, we just work on autopilot, we get stressed out or whatever. And the willingness to receive feedback can be tremendous. And when our leaders, all of my, I mean, again, I mean, there's not a whole lot of females, my best mentors have been men, and the ones that allow you to give feedback, you know, where you say, "Hey, look, you said this, and 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 I, you know, my thought was this was not the best way and course of action because of why," and the person listened to you. I mean, the listening is tremendous, and that that type of leadership is something that
1: um, is indispensable
0: to our industry right now.
1: And it'll be part of the culture, I think, that drives us forward and helps us to all collaborate on this shared goal of really delivering energy to the world um, in a new kind of way. Yes. That does not transition away from our industry, but has us as an important part. Absolutely. So, Melissa, thank you so much for coming today. It was a great visit. I appreciate that you came by. What else do you make besides Gumbo from your um, Louisiana background? Um, so gumbo is certainly the piece de resistance, if you will,
0: (laughs) but, uh, but I can make a, a med, mean red beans and rice, although my husband doesn't like beans. So I, I, that tends to not get made very frequently. Um, and I do a terrific etouffee as well. Oh, it's
1: amazing. I can do a chicken stew with biscuits. Well, when am I going to get my invite? <laughs> I, know, I know, on those morning walks. All right. Thank you everybody so much for joining us today. Melissa Kugel, CFO at Frank's. Thank you so much for your insights. Thanks for coming by the podcast. Um, we appreciate everyone following and sign up for Energy Transition on your favorite podcast platform. And thanks to our sponsors, Pisa, Galtway Marketing, In Global Energy and Marine, and Fletcher Azul Tequila. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on another great episode of the Energy and Transition podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It's the best way to support the podcast and to grow our community. Also, if you want to reach out to us, please go to our website at energyandtransition.com and we'll catch you on the next episode.